The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff. I'm your host for the podcast, and I have with me in the studio Dr. Joseph Piper, president of the seminary, for our monthly segment, Faith and Practice. Dr. Piper, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Zach. It's always good to be with you. Today we have a host of excellent questions. In fact, we have many, many questions. Thank you to those of you, our listeners, who have submitted them to me over the past month. We won't get to all that I've received, but if you have a burning question, please send it to me after this podcast episode, and I'd be happy to add it to the roster or add it to the list. Several of the questions this month have to do with overtures uh, before the PCA General Assembly. Now, whether you're in the PCA or not, if you're looking at what's coming through, and you, and you should be concerned about it, um, you'll notice that there are not one, not two, not three, but four hot-button issues that will, be for, that will be before the PCA General Assembly this summer. So Dr. Pipe and I have conferred, and we've agreed we are going to handle those things in a separate podcast in a couple of weeks, rather than dominate our, our faith and practice time over those things. Now, if you're in another denomination and you have things going on in your church, please ask the question of us. We, we love to discuss our brothers and, and their situations in the OPC, the RCUS, URCNA, and we've spoken about some of those things on the podcast in the past. It's just, for whatever reason, the burning issues this year are hitting the PCA harder than anywhere else. So um, I hope you'll bear with us, and these will be beneficial to you, no matter your ecclesiastical affiliation or membership in whatever branch of Christ's church. So, Dr. Piper, before we kick off our questions, would you please pray for us? Yes, Zach, I'd be glad to. Almighty and glorious God, you who are precious and glorious and so good and kind, who stooped to us and saved us and made us your sons and daughters and given us your word your spirit to indwell us as the seal of our salvation inheritance and as our mentor who teaches us through your word we thank you that uh, in your word is the treasure chest of wisdom of christ and that he opens it up to us and we thank you lord for our reformed um, heritage that is embodied in the westminster standards and the three forms of unity knowing that Scripture interprets Scripture. We are thankful for such a unified approach. And we ask today, as we answer these questions, that we'll seek to do so on the basis of biblical principles, and you'll give us clarity, both of speaking and understanding. And you'll be glorified, Lord, through this podcast. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Um, one announcement before I ask the first question. For those of you who are wondering when and if and how our audio and video will be available from this year's Spring Theology Conference, right now you can order DVDs and CDs from our bookstore. If you contact the seminary, you can email us at info at gpts.edu, and we can walk you through the order process. We'll be creating those items in our e-store as well. And I, I encourage you to do that. If, if, you, if you went to the conference and you are hankering to hear a particular message that's been burning in your heart, or if you weren't able to join us this year and you want to hear the material that was shared and that was preached, and we'll also be releasing the Q&A sessions as a special edition of the podcast sometime later this week for free. But as far as the sermons and the lectures are concerned, those are available for purchase, either video or audio, immediately. And I encourage you to reach out to us if you're at all interested in those things. Without further ado, we're going to dive into our list of questions. Our first question comes from Ashley Blau of Greer, South Carolina. She asks, what is the Reformed view on Christians observing Jewish holidays such as Passover? What place should Jewish holidays found in the Bible have in a Christian's life? Ashley, good to hear from you, and I appreciate uh, your question. We need a little, little bit of uh, biblical history and interpretation in that uh, in the New Testament, there are two phases uh, with respect to Jewish observances. For we find early on, for example, the Apostle Paul going up to Jerusalem for um, a certain feast. Um, 
And what we know from Scripture and church history is that in the time between the ascension of Christ and the destruction of the temple uh, in Jerusalem, that Christians were allowed uh, the liberty to participate in uh, the uh, temple festivals uh, during that period. So we see Paul doing that. Uh, but then uh, when the temple was destroyed, that put an end to those types of activities. So for, for one thing, as you well understand, you can't separate those activities from the temple complex. There's not one of them outside of Purim that really isn't a religious festival, more with Thanksgiving, uh, that can be separated from the temple. Now, it's not just the temple was destroyed. That was the great uh, continental divide in terms of biblical revelation. From that point forward, Christians were not to participate uh, in Jewish ceremonies. Also before that point, some Christians kept the first day Sabbath as well as the seventh day Sabbath. After that point, the church became very committed to having the first day Sabbath. So today, we've got a couple of different things that are going on. One are these Messianic Jews who are uh, saying they become Christians, but they're holding to the Jewish ceremonies. It's completely contrary to what the ceremonies were all about. Paul will tell us, for example, in Colossians chapter 2, they were shadows of Christ, who is the fullness. And so we have the fullness now. And our confession is quite clear uh, with respect to uh, the covenant, that uh, the new covenant uh, is, yes, the same in essence, but it has fewer and simpler ceremonies, namely the two sacraments. And so our sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper encompass all that was about Christ, uh, so to speak, in the Old Covenant, and all we need now uh, in terms of the Spirit working uh, grace in our lives. And so we're going backwards. We're contrary to the book of Hebrews if we go back to, uh, to these uh, practices. And so the Messianic Jews are way off base. A friend of mine, Baruch Moaz, I think he is a converted Jew and has written a good book on this. I think uh, Christian Focus Publications has his book. Now, the others are these evangelicals who are simply uh, wanting to go back and uh, practice the Passover and stuff like that. Now, if somebody wanted to do a Sunday school-type Bible class and uh, enact a Passover for didactic purposes, nothing wrong with that. But periodically we hear people wanting to put them into the worship service or something. That, again, would be contrary to Scripture. Our is the worship that focuses uh, on the triune God, in the, by the Holy Spirit on the basis of Scripture and our simple ordinance of preaching, uh, corporate worship, and our two sacraments. So we should not, there's no place uh, for Jewish holidays in, uh, in a Christian's life. In Christian worship, but you said for didactic purposes to reenact them would be appropriate. Yeah. Or even useful. I don't know that useful, but appropriate. Okay. <laughs> Our next question comes from Lucas Salgado of Recife, Brazil. He says, his concern is about blessing. And I'm not talking about the blessing that you say after someone sneezes. There are many examples of blessing in the Bible. In the Old Testament, Isaac blessed Jacob. In Genesis 27, Moses blessed Israel. In Deuteronomy 33, Balaam blessed Israel. Numbers 23. In the New Testament, Jesus blessed the disciples. Luke 24, and Paul blessed the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 13, 13. The Ephesians, Ephesians 6, 23, and others in his letters. The blessings vary from prosperity to peace and faith. Blessings recorded in the Bible seem to be special and unique. Nowadays, this habit of reverential, solemn blessing is not so common. Sometimes even the final blessing given after the worship service is delivered in a perfunctory, mechanical manner. So my question is this, what is the importance of blessing today? Is it the same today as it was in the Old and New Testaments? Can we give a blessing to a son just like the one given by Isaac to Jacob how should we address this topic in the church and in the family? Lucas, as always, good to hear from you, and I appreciate your question. Let me just uh, start with a little caveat. I think telling, blessing somebody after they have sneezed is more than likely taking God's name in vain, unless you're really praying for a blessing on them. That actually goes back to superstition. Uh, Medieval people thought that when you sneezed, and pagans as well, you opened yourself up to demons and whatever else, and so that was to guard, uh, to guard you. Um, so if we say, and I, I often sign my letters with blessing, 
And I do that, I try to be conscious to make a prayer that God would then bless that person uh, whom I've uh, written a note to. Uh, you're right about the loss of uh, the significance of blessing in our culture. Uh, let me start, though, with the most important blessing, and that is the benediction that should be the peak, so to speak, uh, the climax of corporate worship. And the foundation of this doctrine is Numbers chapter 6. Uh, then verse 22, Jehovah spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, Jehovah bless you and keep you. Jehovah make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. Jehovah lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I then will bless them. Now, this is powerful. We understand this is not a prayer. It's not a wish. It is a God-ordained invocation, a placing of a blessing on a person. That's why it can only be given by the minister of the word, who in corporate worship is God's prophet, our spokesman. And so uh, we should use this blessing. We need to explain to people the significance of this uh, blessing that we are now uh, calling upon God uh, to place his name and to uh, work these blessings in his people. And so Psalm 67, for example, uh, teaches us how to uh, turn that blessing into a prayer, which is what we're to do then as we receive it, but also during the week. And so the psalmist begins, God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth and your salvation among the nations. So in the first place, we've got to restore a proper understanding of this blessing, our benediction in corporate worship. Now, in the family, one of the things that I teach students in my worship course is in the marriage ceremony, uh, rather than simply giving away the bride, there is an exchange of headship. And as part of that, now the father who's already uh, granted his daughter permission to uh, court this man and has granted permission for his daughter to marry this man, now formally, and this is, for example, inferred from Numbers chapter 30, transfers his headship over his daughter to her husband. And I've built into that liturgy than a blessing that the Father will give to the new couple. So I think it's absolutely important, or proper, I should say, uh, for a father to bless his children. Uh, I would hope if, if I'm on my dead bed that I can have my children, grandchildren around me and could uh, uh, give them parting words and ask God to, to bless them uh, in that manner. So... Yes, I think it's still appropriate if done properly uh, in New Testament culture. Thank you for the question, Lucas. For what it's worth, I each evening with my children when I'm home in their home, I, uh, I pray with and for them and, and bless them with a great deal of reverence and seriousness, particularly bless uh, them in their sleep when we are most helpless before God to impress upon them the fact that we are dependent on God's blessings. So do you pray the blessing or do you actually bless them? I pray, and occasionally I'll actually bless them as yeah. their father. Okay. So, um, that's okay, right? I think so. <laughs> I see nothing, think so. nothing contrary to the uh, New Covenant revelation in doing that. Yeah, ne neither do I. We're moving on. Our next two questions are related to one another. We put them back to back, though they came in at different times. They both deal with demonology or the study of demons in Christian theology, not one of the major loci. Well, not just of, demonology. The second one doesn't deal with demonology as much as it does just with the uh, supernatural charismatic gifts. Yes. So the first one deals with demonology in particular. The second one deals with, um, with pneumatology uh, more generally. So first question from Chad Warner of Simpsonville, South Carolina. We always love receiving questions from Chad. How should we respond to a professing Christian who says they rebuke or cast out demons? Hello, Chad. Well, uh, we got to back up some on this one as well, because uh, I think, uh, and I'm, I follow a number of theologians on this, that demon possession, as it was experienced in the New Testament, 
is no longer continuing. I believe that this was the counterfeit incarnation of Satan. And this is why you see it, uh, you don't really see it in the Old Covenant. And you don't, it dies out about two-thirds of the way through the book of Acts. I don't think there's an epistle in which Paul addresses it. Because particularly, um, the devil, this was involuntarily taking physical possession of people, afflicting them, speaking through them, sometimes, uh, quote, prophesying uh, through them. Um, and I think that that particular personification of demon activity ceased with the apostolic era. Now, that is in no way to suggest that there's not horrendous demonic activity taking place. But for me, the key difference today is it's voluntary. And by voluntary, I mean that what's happening is these people have deliberately opened themselves up through witchcraft, or worshiping uh, Satan, all the various occult activities. And so unconverted people opening themselves up to interacting with demons, then these demons uh, can um, exercise horrendous control in the lives of these people. So I think if you understand that, you realize we're in no place now to cast out demons. That actually was something that belonged to uh, Christ and the appointed 12 and then 70. But uh, w today, the antidote to this demon uh, oppression, is what I would call it, is preaching the gospel and uh, proclaim to people to uh, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, when he regenerates such a person, then the Spirit himself will deliver that person from demon oppression. And so that's, I, these people who go around talk, rebuking demons and, and all of that are the Roman Catholic Church with this whole liturgy of uh, uh, exorcism, exorcism uh, I think is wrong. Thank you, Dr. Piper. And do you think it would be inappropriate then to depict a woman shouting at Satan to get out of her house in a movie? I don't care for that. That was in a movie, a very popular evangelical movie that came out, I think, Is that just the last prayer year. warrior one? Yeah. 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 No, I, I talked to my grandkids about that after we watched it together. And is this, in fact, what... Uh, um, she's a Christian. Satan wasn't in her house any more than he is with any of us tempting us. Yeah. Our next question related again to the supernatural from Ross Harris of Fort Waite, Indiana. My wife was converted and raised in the Assemblies of God denomination, and now being a Reformed Confessional Presbyterian, she struggles to make sense out of her experience in the Charismatic Church. She has had very real experiences of being, quote, slain in the Spirit, end quote, quote, speaking slash interpretation of tongues, end quote, and having a, quote, word from the Lord, end quote, spoken over her. What still makes this difficult for her is the realness of these experiences and the many times that the word from the Lord spoken to her was seemingly prescient, predicted something that happened. How should she deal with those experiences in light of our belief that the supernatural gifts ended at the completion of the canon? Put another way, what were those experiences? Well, Ross, uh, thank you for a very sensitive uh, question, and I pray for God's grace that I'll answer it sensitively. Anytime one begins to deal with the uh, experiences of another Christian, one needs to walk very carefully. And so I'm very cognizant of the fact that I'm talking about things that at, at least at one point were very important in the uh, life of your wife and that the memory of them is also very important to her now. So I'm going to try to, to thread my way uh, through this begin with the back. I do agree with you that uh, these supernatural gifts ended uh, with the completion of the canon. Um, they were revelatory and signatory. They were for the communication of truth. We have to remember that the church uh, did not have the completed canon. And so as these churches grew up and they would have many in-house uh, problems to deal with. They would have probably the Old Testament, but how to understand the application of those Old Testament laws to uh, their situation and new situations growing out of the gospel experience. Uh, 
Uh, the church needed prophets. Uh, the church also needed uh, uh, confirming signs, which is what Paul calls them in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, signs of an apostle. And in what way were they signs of an apostle? Well, uh, because Paul said that the Corinthians should know he's an apostle because he had the signs, but they had those signs as well. So what was the difference between what they had and what Paul had? Well, two things. One was Paul would have had all of them, and probably none of them had all of them. But more importantly, they received those gifts from Paul. He received them directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. They're apostolic gifts because it could only be communicated by apostles, which is also why in the transition period before the canon was finally uh, finalized, but the apostles were dead. People had those gifts, and they were still functioning for a period of time in the life of the church. Now, to, to take the particular things that you mentioned in the first place, I don't know of any place in Scripture that slain in the Spirit is ever a biblical experience. I can't find, uh, you know, if I'm wrong, please correct me uh, on that. But uh, that is a fairly modern uh, phenomenon um, and with respect to that, we've got to understand, uh, and this is no insult, please understand this. There's two ways to understand. Well, let me go through all of them first. So then the tongues were, in fact, a curse sign on Israel. And that's quite clear uh, when you look at Isaiah, when he prophesies about the coming of tongues. This was to be a sign to the covenant people of their being forsaken and the gospel going to uh, to the Gentiles. Uh, and there's no way that uh, anybody would know what those tongues meant. Uh, and so, yes, I could give you an interpretation, or she could have had an interpretation, but uh, uh, there's no way to verify that unless there were other witnesses. And, of course, they could just agree. The word from the Lord, uh, we recognize that uh, there are times that uh, I can pretty much tell you what's going to happen uh, in someone's life. Um, some people are better at that than others. Uh, and so uh, you understand, though, you said um, many times it was prescient, but uh, Deuteronomy 18 says if there's ever one error, the person is a false prophet. Without going into, you know, understand, well, how did they get that part right? Well, they weren't completely right. And that means that what they were saying was not of the Lord. Now, I can say that biblically. Now, at this point, then, we've got um, two primary explanations of the phenomena. The first is mass uh, psychology. An interesting little book by Archibald Alexander, Thoughts from Religious Experience. He addresses the issue and actually gives some factual uh, cases where uh, men that had gone to a meeting during times of revival in order to uh, mock, uh, they were blatant, unconverted people, got caught up in the movement of, of the whole revival, even the excesses that were not themselves of the Holy Spirit. He's dealing with mass hysteria type things. And so these things happen. You want them to happen. You wish them to happen. You're in a context that they're going on. So a lot of these experiences grow out of group psychology. The black side of this is, and I'm in no way saying this is the case of your wife, so please understand me, that th these are satanic activities. Uh, not all of them, but they are. And Satan has a, even a better role at guessing the future than we do. He's a master psychologist himself. He knows how we're going to respond in particular types of situations. He knows what he's going to be doing in those situations. And so uh, there's a lot of demonic activity in these things. And the final test is, and J.I. Packer was so clear on this, at the end of the day, if the Christ's not the one being exalted, it's not the Holy Spirit. Because his whole role was to exalt Christ. So I just would encourage your wife um, to not to fret about it. Uh, on the other hand, again, Packer said that oftentimes for Christians, that this is kind of a halfway house to bring them from very weak, liberal, watered-down Christianity to a vibrant, reformed Christianity. You, God's done that for your wife. And so we maybe can't explain, and we never start with our experiences to do theology. Uh, you understand that, Ross. We start with Scripture. Even if we cannot explain all of our experiences, we'll go back to Scripture 
and would be ruled by God through Scripture. I hope this is helpful. Please follow up either privately or with another question. And Ross, just to add um, my personal two cents, my wife and I both came from backgrounds to various degrees of, of, of being in the charismatic movement. I was in the PCUSA, but had a, a charismatic, openly charismatic pastor who related to me many of his experiences from the past that, that seemed awful real to him. And then my wife uh, grew up in a mixture of churches, including an AG church and a, another independent Pentecostal church. So very sympathetic to the question and to the situation, and I thank you for submitting it to us uh, to handle, and, and I hope, uh, I think Dr. Piper handled it quite well. I hope it was helpful to you as well. Our next question comes from Bill Duncan of Gallivance Ferry, South Carolina. Bill, thanks for the question. Recently, I was part of a discussion where a pastor told us he was intending to preach on Luke 8, 1-4 when Jesus heals the leper by touching him. The point of his sermon was that Jesus, by touching the man, became unclean himself, and thus this was a picture of Christ taking on our sins. I have two questions for Dr. Piper. Was Jesus made ceremoniously unclean, and was Jesus subject to the ceremonial law in the first place? Well, Bill, I think Gallivant's Ferry, South Carolina, sounds a lot better than Conway. I'm glad you've changed your <laughs> uh, uh, address there. I like that, Gallivant's Ferry. Now that is really good. Sounds a little hoity-toity uh, to me. Ah, uh, well, you're from Philadelphia, so uh, <laughs> you know. Let's answer your first question, uh, B. Uh, first, uh, Jesus was subject to the ceremonial law. He was made under the law, and the ceremonial law would be part of his humiliation. So he was uh, circumcised. He went up and observed the feast uh, at Jerusalem. Uh, so yes, he would have been bound by that. Now. One could break the ceremonial law and not in any way become a sinner, become uh, unclean, and would have to go through a cleaning ritual or to wait until sunset or whatever. I've just been reading some of those laws this morning in Leviticus. Now, there are two interpretations of uh, this passage in Luke. Uh, I lean toward the point of the pastor and that Jesus did become unclean, and that illustrates what we have in uh, Isaiah uh, 53 uh, that speaks to us of uh, the Savior uh, identifying with his people um, and uh, trying to find a particular uh, passage here. Um, our griefs himself bore, our sorrows he carried, we ourselves esteemed him stricken. You know, we're by his wounds, we are healed. Uh, and so I have no problem of thinking that Jesus, in touching the man, would have been ceremonially unclean and would have had to wait then till sunset to be uh, clean. Uh, on the other hand, there are those that suggest that in the very act of cleansing, uh, the man that the, there was no uncleanness involved in uh, the leprosy. So either one works, but I don't have a problem with Jesus. Jesus could not have lived uh, a life on this earth under the strict Jewish laws and not at times have been ceremonially unclean. Um, again, reading those this morning, I was just thinking these, these poor people, I mean, just all of these laws and, you know, if a bug falls on your cooking utensils or you brush up against a carcass or whatever. So uh, part of his humiliation was to live with those things and to submit to uh, those, uh, those, those requirements. So I hope that's helpful. Yes, he had to keep the law. Yes, he could be unceremonially unclean. Uh, in that particular instance, there's the two approaches. I think either one is uh, defensible. Thank you, Dr. Piper. I recently preached on the earlier passage in Mark where Jesus heals a leper by touching him. Well, not recently, actually a couple semesters ago in <laughs> class. <laughs> so I guess it's not too recent, but uh, I'm getting old. A couple of years ago is recent now, Dr. Piper. 
And um, and I remember encountering both views in the commentaries and, and weighing the, the two of them. And what position did you reach? I landed on the view that rather than the uncleanness being transferred to Christ, rather the cleanness being transferred to the leper from Christ. So Christ is not made unclean by coming into contact with the leper. And that's indicated by the fact that the leper is healed. Our next question comes from Lowell Ivy of Virginia Beach, Virginia. Is it a violation of the spirituality of the church? We might want to quickly define that in answering the question. For a church to become a legal corporation under civil law, or to put the question another way, does the church unbiblically submit itself to the jurisdiction of the state when it becomes a corporation? The Supreme Court has historically regarded the corporation as, quote, a creature of the state, end quote. I've also learned that R.L. Dabney regarded incorporation as an unbiblical intrusion of the state into the affairs of the church, but is the practice of incorporation necessarily a violation of the doctrine of the spirituality of the church? Or is it simply an example of Christians making wise use of existing legal structures and mechanisms as Paul does by appealing to his rights as a Roman citizen? That's a good question. It's a very good question, Lowell. The individual Christian is different than the church in terms of its relationship to the state. But what is the spirituality of the church doctrine, Dr. Piper, in a nutshell? Okay, and the first, the, the doctrine itself is that uh, the church is governed exclusively under the kingship of Christ through the scriptures and is not in any way in terms of her uh, spiritual practices to submit to the state, but only to Christ uh, through Scripture. And that the church then is to be about the gathering and perfecting of the elect and the care of uh, the poor, particularly in, uh, in the congregation, as that's spelled out in our Confession of Faith. Now, we've joined this with another question because they're both very important with regard to this. I've read Dabney and I tend to agree with Dabney uh, to the point that uh, it surely could be an intrusion. So a lot depends upon the state law. If incorporation is merely something where the church has trustees, they have to meet once a year to affirm that they are a, um, a corporate entity and report that to the church, that enables the church, uh, to the state, that enables the church to have banking accounts and to get the 401c, K, all those things that are an important part of our functioning. 401c, whatever. You mean the 501c? 501c, K. Dr. Piper hasn't been in church administration in a while. So we're a 501c3 here. C3. The church, I think, is a different designation. It is, but, but I'm just saying, so for example, um, if the church, you know, people in the church want the right of the tax privilege, which is granted by the state uh, at this point, so that if I'm giving to the charitable, an approved charitable organization, the state then declares that I may deduct that amount on my taxes. Now, as you mentioned in your own thing, that is simply using the, uh, the wisdom that God gives to us to be able to uh, give more money uh, to God's causes uh, and to get the advantages that at this point uh, the state gives us. Now, there's a biblical pattern there as well. We know that when the exiles came back in Ezra and Nehemiah, that uh, the Persian kings gave them all kinds of tax breaks. And so we've actually got a biblical pattern of the state doing that for the church. So in some cases, then you're going to need these various uh, government designations. So back to the trustees, uh, they meet once a year. Your elders can be your trustees. Now, I jokingly, you're in the OPC, and I jokingly say that uh, the OPC has four offices. It's got minister, elder, deacon, and trustee. And not joking, in some OPC congregations, the trustees actually have a greater authority in the church than the elders or the deacons. And then that point, it's not the state's fault. It's the church that has allowed the trustees to usurp uh, the proper spiritual authority as well as diaconal authority of the deacons. The deacons should have the final say-so on the property matters under the authority of the session, not the trustees. The trustees should only be functioning for the right then before the state to, to exist and then to be free from uh, lawsuits individually, uh, things uh, such as that. So I think that there are I'm, when I pastored, I was never keen on uh, the church being incorporated. You can function 
uh, not incorporated. But I think it's a matter of Christian liberty, and I have no difficulty. I don't think as long as you don't violate. So let me put it this way, Lowell. You could violate the spiritual act of church by giving to trustees authority that the Bible only gives to elders and deacons. But there's no, as far as I know, there's no state laws of incorporation that would ever require the church uh, to give to uh, trustees those acts. So if the church has done that, it's the church's fault. It's not the state's fault. Uh, now, I don't know about all 50 states, but at least in my experiences, um, the state, uh, well, it's no different. You do a building, you got to have permits, and permits. you got to have uh, fire things up and proper egress and all of that. And I think the state has every right to tell you to do that, that you need to have these safety features. And they go too far, but it's still within their prerogative. They're not violating the authority of Christ to tell me I have to have a handicapped bathroom. I think his concern is more with this language that the Supreme Court has, uh, has used in regard to corporations as a creature of the state, not merely chartered to assemble together for religious purposes, but... This this weird language. But it's language. the corporation. It's it, the. It's not the congregation. It's not the congregation. That's a of the it's state. not the ecclesiastical. It is this corporation itself. The entity which can yeah. be taken to court as such. Right. Yeah. Thank you for the question, Lowell. I hope that was helpful. If there are any follow up questions, please. Imagine send it as our way. A, a church about to organize that they're having to wrestle with this. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait to hear news about that. Yeah. <laughs> Let us know. And again, if you want to follow up, push back from either direction. That's quite appropriate. Lowell's one of our graduates. He's a church planter with the OPC in Virginia Beach. And our next question actually relates to church ministry and spiritual mission of the church from another graduate in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. This is Pastor John Blevins at Covenant PCA in Oak Ridge. And John asks, what are your thoughts on church sports leagues and churches building the facilities needed for them, such as gyms and playing fields? Should churches invest the Lord's resources into these types of facilities? Do you think this is a legitimate biblical means of outreach to unchurched families? And is it proper for churches to provide sports leagues for our covenant children? He gives the situation that has prompted this question. Dr. Piper, do you want me to read that or, or, or yeah, do you I just want to answer the question? I think we should because that helps, I think, flesh this out. All right, folks. Of, it's very important. Bear with me. You're going to have to listen to my voice a little bit more than usual today. Um, unfortunately, our local parks and rec sports leagues practice several nights a week, including Wednesday evenings and often schedule games and practices on Sundays. A church member introduced my family to a church sports league near our home. Since being introduced to the program, I have coached several teams for my sons over the last couple of years. We appreciate practicing one night a week, never Wednesdays, and games only on Saturday, never the Lord's Day. While the league does focus on developing skills and promotes competition, the primary goal is to teach the players to be Christ-like on the field. Each practice time is set aside for the coaches to lead a devotion and pray with the team. My sons have enjoyed playing soccer, basketball, and flag football in the church sports program. I've gotten to know the men who lead the program, and they have told me the purpose is to provide a sports option for Christian families and to reach out to the local community. Through the sports leagues, several families have over time visited, been saved by the Lord, and joined this particular local church, which isn't Covenant PCA in Oak Ridge. It's another church in the community. And for what it's worth, I appreciate the statements he makes about sports. I wasn't involved in sports growing up, and part of me wishes I was more involved because I see so many men my age who have a discipline that far surpasses mine, largely stemming from their involvement in team sports uh, with a good coach and a, and a godly community of young men. Uh, so, Dr. Piper, what are your thoughts? Are these appropriate? And, and if so, are, are they at all legitimate? How do you go about pursuing them? Well, there's a lot of complexity here, John, and I can tell that you've wrestled with this uh, a good bit. Let's start with the first one. Uh, churches investing in advanced gyms and playing fields, I think, is not a good use of the Lord's resources, although I'm going to have to say that this is going to be a, a, a what, something of the liberty and judgment of the elders. I prefer uh, a multi-purpose room where you can have a gym, but you can have that for your fellowship suppers and other types of get-togethers in a church. So you're not just putting money into a gym. There's a church around here, actually, that has a professional-level gym that some of our students actually use because they can use it free. And faculty. Oh, really? I didn't know any of them worked out. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you can't tell. Oh, that's mean. That's mean. No, they're all in good shape. Mostly. But um, 
But I would be, if you know, if I'm on the session, I'm opposed to, to that type of stewardship. I think it's the liberty of these men to use that uh, thing. But uh, no, I don't think that's a, a good use of resources. I think instead you should give the money to Greenville Seminary. <laughs> well played. Uh, and then a biblical means of outreach to unchurched families. No more so than any other type of social involvement. We ought to be involved uh, with uh, neighbors and friends uh, socially and athletically. We could be in clubs or whatever, a chess club, a garden club, uh, kiwanas, uh, any of these types of activities. Build relationships, and it's very important that we as Christian men, women, boys, and girls build these relationships in the community. And when we do so, I believe we're going to see uh, God use those relationships to bring others to know Christ. But you don't have to build a gym or an athletic field to do that. Now, your third question is where it really gets important. And is it proper for churches to provide sports leagues for our covenant children? I guess the parallel, uh, John, that comes to mind is the whole argument over parochial schooling. So is it proper for the church to have a Christian school, or should the Christian school either be a private-run enterprise or parentally controlled? And because of my doctrine of spirituality of the church, I lean toward uh, a parochial or actually even a private enterprise uh, Christian uh, school. I would find the parochial uh, method to be less satisfactory because of the spirituality of the church. But I would not get two negatives here. I would not not send my children. My children went to a, a Lutheran school and later on to the probably was the first Reformed classical school in the United States in Houston that was under a, an Episcopal church, an Evangelical Reformed Episcopal church. Um, and so it's not that I wouldn't send my kids to such a school if there's no other uh, option. And that's really where I kind of come down now on uh, this particular uh, issue. I think it's good to be able to offer options. Now, my grandchildren have played uh, up in Michigan in a homeschool league that the churches allow the teams to use their facilities. So, again, there's a church that has a gym. And they let the uh, homeschool league play. And this actually, this league is quite good. They go to the nationals. Uh, and so it's given great opportunity for the uh, Christian children to have relationships. They're, they're homeschooled. They're getting more social activity uh, in this as well. But I think others, they, I think they play Christian schools as well in, in the league. And so um, for me, that would be the, the better way because in our communities, the park system is open to Anybody In Houston, uh, our church played in um, the church softball league. But the church softball league wasn't promoted. It wasn't under the church. It was under the city's park and recreation. And the churches were then allowed to uh, register and pay a fee and put their teams in there. Those were good activities. So I prefer it to happen uh, in that way. But if the only option is that which you are facing... Uh, and it's under the church, even though I would say I, would, I wouldn't want your church doing it. I would think that uh, at this point, it's a good option uh, for your boys. Uh, and I, uh, I don't think you're violating anything to be involved in it. I would agree. I would like careful definitions on what constitutes an advanced playing field or advanced gym. You gave us with the gym, having it be more of a multifunction place. But what 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 extent of maintenance of a field is, is too much? Is grading a field too much? Is, you know, having, having days of the week well, being taken the out, mowing the lawn, If the church and has the property, and uh, the church, a PCA church from my house, and they, got, they also have a school, but they've got soccer fields and stuff like that. It doesn't take a lot of maintenance to put out grass and uh, put up nets at the end and stuff like that. And so, that really serves the school, too, yeah. more than the church uh, itself. I was thinking more in terms of, uh, you know, a softball field demands a good bit more, but we have access to the park system. So I was thinking more in terms of those advanced fields, not a a field that kids can run and, and play on and play soccer on. So if, it, the land, if the church had land. So installing a bowling alley in uh, in my... <laughs> 
in my church when I graduate and take a call. That's that's out of the question. Yeah, that's out of the question. Oh, bummer. All right. <laughs> unless, you, unless you can bowl 300. I got to 268 one time. That was 10 strikes in a row. Yeah, but that's still close only counts in horseshoes. That doesn't count in bowling. I know you're right. All right. All right. All right. Our next question comes from Anonymous. Another church-related question. Please discuss the pros and cons of a rotating session. What constitutes a healthy rotation, an unhealthy rotation? All right. Very good, Anonymous. Coward. No. (laughs) (laughs) No. These types of questions should remain anonymous uh, oftentimes. Uh, And it's a very important question. Let me first explain for our hearers what a rotating session is. Uh, And in fact, even that's difficult because there's a number of ways that uh, one functions. But normally what you would have is uh, ruling elders are going to be elected for terms. So let's say it's a three-year term. After a three-year term, the ruling elder must rotate off the session. And to come back on the session, he has to be off a year. He then must be re-nominated and re-elected. Now, that's the classical uh, rotating system. Uh, I find that to be completely uh, lacking any biblical warrant uh, whatsoever. Uh, It actually was part of the continental uh, system, I think, as I've looked at the canons of Dort, or the uh, order out of Dort. It's perhaps something that they had. In Presbyterianism, it was uh, a strategy uh, by liberals to get conservatives off of the church session. Liberal pastor would come in, he'd start cultivating his men. When the conservatives' term was up, he would rotate off, and they would try to make sure he was not reelected. And so they use that as a strategy. Uh, Today, it's the coward's way out. So, for example, in the PCA Book of Order, it's allowed. It's not the primary uh, means, but it is allowed. And unfortunately, it's become the primary uh, modus operandi then uh, in our churches. Now, just think about it. We don't do our pastors this way, do we? Um, We're stuck with them. If they don't get a call, uh, we can have a petition. Uh, it gets pretty messy for them to be removed, but they don't have to stand up for a, a vote every three years to continue. Uh, and so it's a double standard. Uh, and we're supposed to be nurturing and mentoring men. And to do that, if you've got a man on the session that either is unqualified or is causing problems, then let's act like men. That's a very biblical uh, commandment. Act like men, sit down with the person Talk to him about the qualifications of the eldership. Uh, challenge him to uh, repent and develop in the maturity of his office. And if he doesn't do so, then say, we really think that you should resign. And if it's serious, then the other elders will have responsibility to act against him. Now, that is the biblical manly way to deal with these situations. On the other hand, it weakens the church. Because this is the only practice in the Dutch churches, what I've discovered in the Dutch Reformed churches is uh, you rarely discover a really sound, godly, biblical session. And why is that? Because these men rotate off, and then you've got to put warm bodies in their place, and warm bodies often are unqualified elders. And so the good guys go off, and then you got to put three more in there, and you don't. Maybe one of the three is really qualified, and you've just weakened the session. It weakens the church's pastoral care. So you've been on the session for three years. If you've been doing your job, you've gotten to know certain people in the congregation, whatever you call them, your parish, your under shepherd group, or whatever. You you should have developed relationships. You should have been in their home visiting them, and now you're off the session, and they're going to be assigned to a completely new man. Uh, in order to uh, meet this rotating uh, problem. So I I don't find it in Scripture, and I find it to have a lot of pastoral uh, problems. Now, the objection will then be, but but these ruling elders, you know, they've got full-time jobs, they've got families, it's difficult, they can get worn out. That's right. And so build into the system a uh, sabbatical. And every so many years, if a ruling elder wants to take a year off, um, he does so, and he's back on the session uh, a year later. 
Uh, and that deals with the uh, personal problems of, of the work without creating uh, the same kind of, of problems that I think are part of the rotating system. There's an excellent essay on this uh, by John Murray. And Tim Whitmer, in his book, The Shepherd Leader, which I highly recommend uh, for anyone on a session or working through officer training, Tim Whitmer, uh, my former pastor, included that, ch- uh, that essay by Dr. Murray, or Professor Murray, I should say, in the back of his book as an appendix to The Shepherd Leader. And uh, that book, The Shepherd Leader, is helpful if you have a rotating session or if you don't. Um, Dr. Whitmer's position, Pastor Tim, as I know him, his position is that um, when you're an elder, you're an elder for life. Sabbaticals are appropriate, but the, the constant in and out of a rotation isn't helpful, uh, though we can work with it and still adopt the biblical paradigm of, of care in the church. You better be careful, Zach. Why? You, your former pastor was a charismatic. So this is after you left the PCSA <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and came into the PCA. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Whitmer, Dr. Whitmer has been in the PCA since the mid-'70s, almost almost as long as Dr. Piper. And so this was my, my second uh, church in which I retained membership, and the one that sent me to seminary, um, Crossroads Community Church in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. So... Well, I think that brings us up on our time, Dr. Piper, but I really appreciate you coming into the studio, speaking with me. I want to give a little preview for what uh, folks can expect uh, moving forward. We have one question that's been sitting on our list for months about a particular book that we haven't had a chance to take a look at yet, so I won't even mention the book there, but we have questions dealing with the ESS controversy, Eternal Subordination of the Sun, particularly as it's been worked out in uh, on founders.org. So we'll get hopefully to that next time. And then we have questions about so-called thin complementarianism, John Murray's doctrine of definitive sanctification, uh, classical liberalism of Edmund Burke and Russell Kirk. So that'll be an interesting question to tackle for us a little bit out of our out of our lane. Uh, how to define a well-read Christian ruling elder, teaching elder, progressive push happening in Napark churches, and then also another exegetical question and practical question dealing with the anointing of the sick, as it's described in Mark 6.13, and then uh, commended to the church in the book of James. And then we have several questions dealing with overtures, overture 23, overture 27, and then particularly overture 29, but also overtures 8, 14, 19, 21, um, uh, before the PCA General Assembly, all of which so we'll deal do with the overtures. We're rolling in in two weeks, yeah. and then a regular monthly podcast, which will be May the sixth. Uh, we'll try to get to these other questions. So, moral of the story is: you send us questions uh, with overtures, we'll have twice as many faith and practices, and Zach will spend twice as much time editing all this stuff to make it presentable to the world. Doctor Piper, thank you again for joining me. Thank you, Zach, and for your excellent work. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.